Welcome back to the Gillette Health Podcast, where we give you tools to develop a balanced approach for health. I'm Dr. Kyle Gillette. And I'm James O'Hara, nurse practitioner. Today, we're going to be telling scientists how they should do their jobs. I, I think that's what we're doing today, right? Yeah, in one way. Um, I guess another thing that we're doing today is talking about something that we are both very passionate about, um, which is scientific literature. Wait, you mean you have to look at that after you graduate? <laughs> yeah, I guess so, at least if you're a PhD. Yeah, so this is relevant, I think, to our field because the study results that are published or in many cases not published can go on to impact the clinical care that patients are gonna receive down the line. Mm -hmm. um, and this, it sort of goes back all the way to in vitro data, um, in vivo data and preclinical models like yep. flies, mice, uh, dogs in some cases. And by preclinical, that just basically means not humans. Yeah, exactly. And then you know, human, human data we know uh, as a great example right here, this first one we're going to talk about was a human study, and it looks like it was not published. I assume they didn't get the result they were looking for. Yep. Uh, but the clinical trial itself was still being cited in some manner. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so this is a pet peeve of mine. You know, if my wife and I were playing the newlyweds game and uh, somebody asked Maddie what my main pet peeves would be, she'd probably say... Um, quotations that do not quote the correct thing in scientific literature and also clinicaltrials.gov clinical trials that are completed that have results, but there are no results publicly published, even behind a paywall. Um, but that's kind of an aside. This is a, a trial that was run um, in the Carolinas by a reputable physician, an MD, PhD, uh, I believe PhD in biochemistry and an uh, MD, he, uh, he's a pediatrician, board certified pediatrician, concentrates on weight management right up our alley um, and has done a lot of work in um, toxicology and whatnot, but uh, ran a trial of 20 individuals, no placebo controlled, um, and looking at preservatives, potassium benzoate, sodium benzoate, I believe. Um, and yeah, completed over two years ago, yet there is no results published. So we've mentioned this before. I think this was the same case in, now that I think of it, in the trial of RU58841. Yeah, I think that the, and you see this a lot in these, you know, I don't think that will ever be published. Um, the example, uh, KX826, I believe is the research name for a topical androgen receptor antagonist being developed for acne and male pattern baldness. And you just get these press releases here and there. You don't actually get the full study data. Uh, and this is actually the same case for the uh, CERT1 activator that yep. uh, Certuis was researching. Um, the, the only sort of publication we got was when this trial was stopped because of, uh, it was in multiple myeloma. Uh, there was some kidney failure and they weren't sure if it was the condition or the drug, but we got that data, but there's mm -hmm. no full trial data to access. Yep. And they so, certainly have that data. <laughs> <laughs> they do. And just like in this study, the, the hypothesis was, it, it's actually really appealing. Um, I mean, even though the methods weren't bulletproof by any means, if they got a statistically significant result, even mm -hmm. if it was a few calories of difference, uh, this would be making its rounds on social media. It would have been a blockbuster paper for influencers. So yeah. what were they trying to test? Yeah, just look at these uh, buzzwords. An obesogenic xenobiotic, which is benzoic acid used in preservatives all over the place. Um, but when you're testing something like this, you wanna have a placebo group and you also, want to keep in mind that if one of your outpoint if one of your outpoints is indirect 
calimetry, you, you have to know that you're not going to expect something crazy from that. You'd have to have a really large effect to detect a, maybe not statistically significant, but clinically significant difference if that's mm -hmm. the method you're using to measure RMR. Yeah. And the excuse that they lost funding or whatnot, probably not applicable because the uh, the study was completed. Only 20 people too. So that's much cheaper than if you have a you know, population of 10,000 people you're trying to study. Yeah. So I guess the, the point of this is not to disparage the institution or the clinician scientists that ran this or could have slightly tweaked the materials and methods. It looks like he was busy with many other important areas of research, but it's just to note um, he did the work. It would be nice if it was published, even if it wasn't the greatest of data. Perhaps he applied to a few different academic journals and didn't get accepted, um, but he still could have uh, put the data out there as unpublished data. I know that there is some poor quality data, uh, and again, we like hair loss stuff, on the systemic absorption of topical dutasteride, which is in a YouTube video. So this uh, is data that's not been peer-reviewed, correct? correct? It's just their original manuscript. Correct. Non-peer-reviewed data that looks, I think it's something like a 5% systemic absorption of topical dutasteride, and um, that is not published in a journal. It's just put in a slideshow in a YouTube video. But honestly, that's better than nothing, because that's the only thing out there on uh, topical absorption. Yeah. And then, you know, that sort of builds a foundation for others to study upon. And what if the results of this would have been the opposite of what they were expecting? So their hypothesis was, hey, these preservatives in our food are slowing down our metabolism, right? That's what they were trying to measure because mm -hmm. it's affecting leptin and all these other things. And there's people that have built entire social media careers around leptin or insulin or the mm -hmm. size of your fat cells. Uh, trying to disprove, you know, calories in versus calories out as sort of the, you know, foundational aspect of, you know, obesity. Um, so what if they found out that these preservatives actually improve metabolism? Yeah, uh, they should certainly publish that data. Yeah, because right now we, we don't know whether they slow down metabolism, whether there's a neutral effect, or whether they speed up metabolism. I think there were maybe some hints in preclinical literature um, but again, you know, there's so many variables. Um, I don't think it's a clinically significant effect, probably yeah, less I, than 1% yeah. if I had to guess. Yeah, probably not clinically significant. What is clinically significant is if your food goes bad without a preservative, you might want to use a preservative of some sort. Yeah, looking at the risks and rewards of preservatives, they've done an overwhelming amount of good for society. Yeah, seems like that. I'll keep eating my... Uh, old canned food with botulism in it, though. <laughs> Keeps my skin young. <laughs> All right. Uh, and then another one. This is actually a, an example of a study that was published with the author's hypothesis being counter to that of the findings. Mm -hmm. So uh, this actually started in a preclinical rat study. Uh, ketamine has become you know, very popular. You know, it's it's all over the place. People are in some cases, and we don't recommend this, you know, doing this at home from telemedicine pop-ups. Mm -hmm. um, really, this should be done with close supervision. Uh, but basically, in an animal model, the rats were given a ketamine infusion. Say, hey, uh, this NMDA receptor modulator is activating mTOR, um, driving synaptogenesis. And that's part of what we think is causing the antidepressant effect. So mm -hmm. what happens if we block mTOR? So they gave the mice a... Uh, 
I'll just call it an intracranial infusion of rapamycin, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, it's fairly common in animal research from my reading. I, I'm not a rat researcher, but it seems like it's a common practice to get things into the central nervous system. Mm-hmm. Um, and that very effectively attenuated the benefit of the rap, of the ketamine for the depression. So they thought, hey, this is probably, you know, something we should look at in people as well. Yep. So they did a phase one safety study, um, much like you would think of someone getting their first ketamine treatment. Um, they had a you know, supervision. They remained on a research unit for 10 hours after the protocol. Yep. Uh, basically, they were given rapamycin two hours before the ketamine infusion. And then they wanted to make sure nothing bad happened to these people. So this was only three people in phase one. Mm-hmm. So you know, obviously a very small sample group. But then the most important thing, you know, were there any adverse effects? Was everybody okay? Everyone was okay, so they moved on to phase two. Phase two, a little bit larger patient population, still not massive. 23 patients, and they were thinking that, hey, you know, this is still likely to attenuate the antidepressant benefit. And what they saw mm-hmm. was the opposite. So those who were pre-treated with the rapamycin compared to placebo, uh, which is extremely important in yeah. depression studies because I guarantee if you would have had, you and I were discussing this, if they had a third group that was, didn't receive placebo, didn't receive rapamycin, probably would have an even poorer response. I looked at this and I couldn't find any information about what patients were told. So Mm. if they were told that, hey, you're going to take this rapamycin and it's going to block the effect, effect, you get the nocebo effect. Yeah, you would think there'd be a nocebo. I couldn't find anything like that in the paper. So I'm not sure exactly, you know, paperwork or what they were informed of, but hey. Probably not informed that rapamycin would block the benefit of treatment. Yeah, I I wouldn't think so. Um, But anyway, they gave uh, six milligrams, which is a pretty common dose in clinical literature. Um, I think there's probably 10 or a dozen studies going on with rapamycin or other rapalogs for various measures of aging and health. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the hypothesis was it's going to block this synaptogenesis. And, you know, we know from other depression medications, SSRIs, that you get a spike in BDNF, which growth factor for the brain and Mm -hmm. helps preserve uh, synapse and neurons. That that has, it kind of correlates with this antidepressant effect. It's probably not the only mechanism, um, but it is one mechanism. And they were targeting a blood level of between 5 and 20 nanograms per ml. You need to check that for rapamycin. If you are taking rapamycin, you should definitely make sure at the very least that you're not chronically having rapamycin in your system and being immunosuppressed. But my biohacker website and my functional medicine doctor doesn't make me check a peak or a trough. That does happen quite often. Yeah. But you should also be checking a peak to see if you are even absorbing your rapamycin, especially if it's compounded. Um, And and we've talked about this before, and I think we've seen some results there that maybe we'll have a follow-up episode on. Mm -hmm. Um, But they did the proper thing. They were targeting level with with a six milligram dose two hours later. I'm sure all of these patients had levels well over five nanogram per ml, probably Probably 10 to 20. Yeah. That's what I would think. Um, And then you have your acute response. So basically... I think looking at the graph here, I think it was 70, 80% mm-hmm. immediately after the ketamine. They have this antidepressant effect, right? Yep. It's kind of dissociative. Um, it's not an anesthesia dose, but they did use the most common dose of 0.5 milligrams per kilogram you know, weight-based dosing. I think for anesthesia, it's about triple that amount or triple that concentration. So the rapamycin group had a response rate. So this means at 24 hours, how many people are 
you know, not depressed based on a rating scale, 41%. Remission rate is at two weeks post-treatment. Uh, and that was 29%. So mm -hmm. these are people with depression that came in. And now about a third of them are not depressed two weeks later. Yep. Placebo group, um, placebo pill, real ketamine. Yep. 13% remission. Yeah, seems pretty low. Response and then 7% remission. So it kind of makes me question, kind of as an aside, the buzz around ketamine yeah. as an antidepressant therapy. And there typically are repeated treatments, but as a single, like flipping a switch, like, hey, this works in, I've seen figures of like 50% thrown around. Yeah. It doesn't seem to be the case because you're looking at about 7% of people who just get a single infusion. And again, it's a small group, so percentages can't give a ton of weight to it, but it doesn't look great. Yeah, um, I guess limitations would be, I believe this was ketamine and not the brand name Spravato that has gone through, uh, you know, uh, clinical trials and FDA approval status and uh, a couple other potential limitations. This, uh, I don't think that this was limited to people that have treatment refractory depression. So usually with Spravato or S-ketamine or ketamine in general, um, most uh, psychiatrists or mental health experts would not recommend this until you've already gone through first-line therapy and failed other mechanisms. So perhaps some of the individuals um, would benefit from a different mechanism of antidepressant therapy. Yeah, that's definitely true. And again, we don't have a lot of detail on this. A um, couple things they did control for, so strengths. Um, rapamycin didn't change serum levels of ketamine, didn't change the subjective response to ketamine. So the levels of dissociation, were similar in both groups. So it wasn't that this person had a different experience and that's why they had a different outcome. Um, so they had sort of two theories. Um, the first one kind of hinted at, um, in depression, there's this idea of neuroinflammation. And I believe that's been measured and pretty well established, not just in depression, but other mm -hmm. mental health pathology as well. Probably why uh, omega-3s, for example, have some positive data yep. in depression that can help reduce inflammation. Improving metabolic health. Yep. Uh, basically, things that Chris Palmer talks about. Yeah. Yeah. So you're going to have better mitochondrial function if you have less, less inflammation. Yeah. It has all the machinery of the body running more smoothly when it's you know, in its normal state. They hypothesize that this inflammation is not allowing these new synapses that are formed to... Uh, survive and, and grow together. They think this inflammation is just a, a really a hostile environment, um, which is probably true. Uh, and then the rapamycin with its anti-inflammatory effects sort of protects these synapses and allows them to grow. Um, the alternative theory is just autophagy enhancer, which is very nonspecific. Um, the preclinical data showed that repeated, you know, doses of, uh, I don't know if it was rapamycin specifically, but Autophagy enhancing factors mm -hmm. seem to improve depression in an animal model. Um, so it doesn't really explain why you would have this acute effect. So the first mm -hmm. theory seems to have a little bit more weight behind it. Yeah. Also, anything related to autophagy is no longer in vogue in biohacking or the health optimization community. Uh, it was 10 or 15 years ago when I studied uh, autophagy in uh, undergraduate clinical like bench research. So but, how long was your water fast when you were studying autophagy? <laughs> yeah. Uh, exactly. But yeah, now that it's no longer popular, then uh, I guess that means as researchers, we should completely ignore it. Actually not. And we'll talk about that <laughs> later. Yeah. And then another example, this is a study that, you know, had a hypothesis and published their data mm -hmm. um, that 
was consistent with their hypothesis, but uh, get, I guess this is sort of another topic that's gone out of favor. Uh, sirtuins as mm -hmm. longevity genes. Do um, you know what? who funded the study? I don't. Probably not a company with a sirtuin-related drug or something. Probably like not sirtuous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but basically, they looked at you know overexpression of sirt2. Uh, for reference, sirt1 is the gene uh, and the activator that uh, sirtuis and GSK were trying to evaluate. Um, you know, trials like diabetes and cancer and all these different things and ended up not panning out. Um, they looked at sirt2 overexpression in mice. And what they saw was that there's really no difference in longevity metrics. This is true for, they actually included male and female mice in this. Uh, it's very important as, you know, a lot of, if you go back probably 30 years, 40 years, mm -hmm. uh, not a lot of female mice being uh, studied because, you know, their hormones screw up all the data uh, is I think what they would say back then. But tested it on a high fat diet, male mice, female mice, no effect. So it yeah. does not extend lifespan in this model and it's not likely to be a you know, longevity gene. Not to say that if you mm -hmm. don't have any SIRT2 expression, mm -hmm. bad things won't happen. Yep. But that's very different than saying, oh, if you overexpress this, then good things will happen. You think of it like a, a bell-shaped curve. You yeah. can use testosterone or really any hormone is a good example of that. Mm -hmm. A deficiency is not good, but excess is also not always a good thing. But at least yeah. here it appeared to be neutral. Yeah, there should be a therapeutic window for most therapies. Um, Sometimes it's wide and sometimes it's narrow and sometimes there's no window at all. Yeah, it's like a ceiling effect here. It's like you have to have a normal level of CERT2, but any more beyond that, you know, it's really not going to help you. I, I suppose you could use a similar thing with B vitamins. Boosting testosterone. There's no testosterone booster. There's testosterone vitamins. <laughs> but if you boost your testosterone enough, then I think you would actually see a shortening of lifespan. So it's not as much as a ceiling effect as like true. There's linear effects and also linear side effects. Mm -hmm. Whereas here, it sort of is linear and then it caps yep. off. So there's not side effects to it from a lifespan standpoint, yeah. but also not benefit there's to no it. There's no benefit. Yep. Um, yeah. Uh, but Interestingly, I did see, so this kind of reminds me of when you study humans, you obviously want to have males, females, people of different genetic backgrounds. Um, there's a very high prevalence of obesity in this country and many developed countries. I saw that this morning there was a joint letter to the FDA that they want to include separate groups for obese individuals in every, and usually they do as part of subgroup analysis, but they want to have specifically a, a different group for obese and non-obese people, which I thought was interesting because I think most studies have this. And I think most studies are conducted on people who are overweight or obese or have some condition at baseline. Mm -hmm. Very rarely are you going to see a study, you know, like, like we would like to see, like, hey, let's give people high doses of omega-3s that are healthy at baseline mm -hmm. and see what happens over 20 years. You know, that study is never going to be done because there's no, there's no reward at the end of that, no yeah. financial incentive. Um, so, I, I mean, that does interest me as a person who is uh, overweight, but not obese. I, I consider myself to be metabolically healthy because then mm -hmm. I can see, okay, this helps someone who has obesity or who is overweight, but is it going to help me as a healthy individual? Because yeah. a lot of the benefits people look at with something like, you know, metformin, it's like, well, should healthy people be taking this? Mm -hmm. If you are diabetic, I mean, almost certainly that's going to have a positive effect, but healthy individuals, 
very hard to see an effect size there. And of course, there's the TAME aging trial with metformin in older adults that'll come out um, probably in the next five years. Uh, and that should give us some data unless they have a really substantial finding in the meantime where they might publish something early. There's also a large trial on atorvastatin, I believe 40 milligrams, I believe compared to placebo in a large group of individuals 70 plus that comes out in 2025. That'll be an exciting one too. Those are going to be two big, we call them uh, clinical movie trailers that we'll see what the results are. Of course, there's limitations to that since because it's lipophilic, mm -hmm. but um, it'll still be good to see. Yeah, and it was 2008 when GSK paid almost a billion dollars for the company Sirtuis, which makes me feel kind of old. Hmm. That was 15 years ago at this point. Yeah, uh, how'd that one work out? How expensive uh, are GSK It drugs? was not a good investment. I mean, perhaps if a better company like Eli Lilly had acquired Sirtuis, we might have better drugs. That's a joke. <laughs> more, more expensive drugs? Yeah. Um, yeah, um, and I guess to fully state my disclosures, my father-in-law does work for Novartis and has for many years. Um, he says one of the reasons why Novartis um, seems to be slower than some companies is they're too ethical. So I think it's a very nice way of uh, talking about the motivations of other large pharmaceutical companies. We Sounds like something I would say if I worked for Novartis. Yeah, maybe people would say that <laughs> if they worked for any company. Um, but uh, that's just uh, one small microcosm of my personal experience. All right. And then you pulled a couple of other examples here. Uh, mm -hmm. The first of which I think has some principles that are good, good publishing principles, regardless of which niche of science you're in. Yeah, I love these core ideas. And uh, both of these articles, thank you for publishing them open access. Um, if they, if you've read an article and talk about publishing results, um, that's, you know, a, a broad spectrum thing and then put it behind a paywall. Uh, we have to put up a screen cap of the famous paper, The Inaccessibility of Science, that says, like, click here to purchase. Yeah. We have to put that one up. Our editor can find that. <laughs> yep. Um, but anyway, um, this article is out actually out of an agricultural science journal. But the core ideas can be taken away across any discipline. It is publish results that conflict with current assumptions. Look beyond current fads, autophagy, etc. Mm -hmm. um, break with discredited but popular assumptions. So uh, it talks about uh, a lot of different, like uh, I guess, biochemical preconception uh, preconceptions in the agricultural industry in the '60s. But they talk about how the peer-reviewed system makes it difficult to get a paper published that questions established assumptions, which uh, certainly makes sense. That's why you see a lot of these tiny journals, low impact factor, um, and uh, usually most people that publish one do not want to publish open access because not only does the journal not get money paid to them for doing that, you have to pay the journal money. So the journal doesn't want to just publish something for the good of public health. They, they're a business too. Yeah, and then if you are a, let's say you happen to be a reviewer sitting on the board of JAMA mm -hmm. and you have a controversial paper that goes against a lot of things that are well-established in the medical community, you might be likely to, I don't know, nitpick that to the point of it going and getting published somewhere else mm -hmm. just because you don't want to be the person that's like, who approved, you know, someone reading that, who approved this paper, and then your name's there as a reviewer. Yep. Um, 
I saw another interesting paper. It talked about Garfield's demons, but I believe Eugene Garfield was the scientist that came up with impact factor many decades ago. And he has a lot of interesting, I guess, editorial publishings that um, people would be interested in reading. But uh, some of them talk about publishing um, results versus unexpected results. And there's also a lot of papers about uh, basically clickbait titles in scientific literature. Compared to 50, 100 years ago, it's uh, much more common, 11 times as common to put unexpected in your title and get people to click on it. However, those papers do not get any more citations. So what some of these articles say is um, clickbait titles in scientific journals are not going to get you more Perhaps citations. more views, but you're not going to get more citations. And nope. I, I think the citations is a metric that can affect the like how impactful your paper is on yep. a, just objectively as opposed to yep. subjectively. Those are the three ways that you flex as a, a scientist is your number of citations, the impact factor of your journals, and the number of published articles, um, which is just kind of interesting. I don't think it's good or bad. It's just how it I, is. I enjoy creative titles. I think we yeah. I can't think of one off the top of my head, but I know we've mentioned some that I've said, hey, I, I appreciate this title because it was creative. Mm -hmm. Um, applying this to medicine a bit more, this is a more recent article um, from 2019, and it's in the uh, OB-GYN, it's in a major OB-GYN journal, and it talks about dealing with unexpected results. So in this specific article, it talks about the difference between some of the trials for hysterectomy or removing the uterus after cervical cancer and how they did uh, good randomized control trials. And this is specifically with randomized control trials. Um, with some scientific questions, there's no systematic review, there's no meta-analysis that you can go to. The research is still ongoing. And in England, I believe they did uh, laparoscopy and had better results, less cancer recurrence. And they do more laparoscopic uh, hysterectomies, radical hysterectomies in England. It's, like it's a common thing. They're familiar with it. The uterine manipulator, the details don't really matter as much, but um, they're better at doing that, so perhaps that's why they got better results. In the United States, the open uh, hysterectomy had better results for um, like less cervical cancer recurrence and whatnot. So uh, obviously the, the question at the end is, well, let's repeat this result and figure out exactly why. Let's not just hypothesize about it, but until then, what do you do? Um, so yeah, it's like your classic brand new doctor at a residency. There's not an algorithm or a guideline from a society to do. I have no idea what to do. Um, but uh, this just basically talks about how it is great that both of these studies had good experimental design. They discussed their limitations. They discussed the strengths. And they published completely conflicting results because now individuals who are treating patients with cervical cancer have a, uh, they can use their mind. Clinical judgment. and whatever they are best at doing. Perhaps if they're great at doing open hysterectomies and they've been doing those for 30 years and they've never done a laparoscopic hysterectomy and they're the only person in the area that can treat this patient with cervical cancer, perhaps they don't read this one study that's published that talks about um, how you're gonna get better results if you do laparoscopic surgery. Yeah, I, I mean, just looking at trends in other surgical specialties, it seems like minimally invasive is the way that things have gone. Mm -hmm. uh, but obviously, if you're telling someone to do something that they 
don't want to do, they're not comfortable doing, they have less experience with, mm-hmm. you're probably at least initially not going to have better outcomes with that. So that's another variable. And I'm, I'm not sure quite how you would account for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's a similar thing in a lot of specialties. We get a lot of questions about vasectomies. And, you know, should you do clips? Should you do ties? Should you do an open-ended vasectomy? And there's a lot of ways that you can do it. Uh, should you do, um, um, should you pull up the fascia when you do it? Um, there's some things like no scalpel technique that as long as you're trained to do it, make a lot of sense. But there are multiple good ways to do the same surgery in general, if your surgeon has done it the same way many, many times, and there's not a huge difference, there's more than one way, one good way to do it. Yeah. And speaking of surgery, you had one recently and remind me, did your nasal surgeon use the anterior or posterior approach? (laughs) (laughs) Not, not the posterior approach. I did not get any sort of lobotomy for free that came with it. Um, but yeah, I'm breathing much better. I'm sleeping much better. Uh, I had a couple different things and maybe I'll have that surgeon on at some point, uh, facial plastics and, um, ENT surgeon. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm doing much better and I recovered much quicker than I thought. Yeah. And for those of you that are regular listeners to the podcast, you'll have to let us know if you hear more, less, or the same amount of Kyle's breathing during the podcast. You might've noticed that the microphone position has shifted a little bit if you're watching this on YouTube. It's further up and our editor is very happy with not having to edit out as many of my breathing noises. I have less (laughs) turbulent flow. That's the word that um, the surgeon used. I think that about sums it up for today. As always, thank you for your time listening. Please put any questions or comments um, in the comment section below, Instagram, YouTube, doesn't matter where. Yep. Thank you for your time. May God bless you with health and happiness.